Good morning. It's great to be here with you. A few weeks ago, we were talking about the summer preaching schedule, and the question came up of Memorial Day weekend, and should we alter the schedule for this weekend? And then someone looked and saw that I was preaching and said, yeah, let's just go with one. <laughs> no need to make more people suffer, right? But I want to warn you that the air conditioning is out in my house. So I am in no hurry to finish. <laughs> Seriously, it's good to be with you, uh, good to be here in this room, and for those that are joining us online, we're glad you're with us as well as we're celebrating this Memorial Day weekend, kind of the kickoff to summer, the weekend where you know, we barbecue, go to the lake, go to the beach, but we also, uh, as Chuck was mentioning, remember those that have been lost. Remember those young people through the generations that forfeited their lives for our freedom. And I think that the war in Afghanistan and the ending of that um, and the war in Ukraine have just once again reminded us of just the horror of war and just the cost of freedom. So this week we do remember those that have given their life. The war in Ukraine has also reminded us of the power of leadership because leadership can inspire and do great good or it can tear down and it can do great evil. And it seems like we are living in an age of so many disappointing leaders. It seems like a week does not go by when we don't see a leadership failure. Business leaders, coaches, politicians, and too many pastors. You just watch the news and you just, you just kind of want to throw up your hands. Well, this week in our quest journey, we're looking at 2 Kings, which was sort of a hall of shame of leadership. You realize that bad leadership didn't just start in our lifetime. And this week, we're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles or you want to get a Bible out of the pew pocket, that would be great because that's where we're going to be. I was telling Rich this week that I was going to be preaching on Hezekiah, and he told me a story that he had a friend who was a pastor who decided that the, the guy sort of felt like his church needed more Christian education, and he was trying to convince them. So he told them to raise their hand if they had read the book of Hezekiah, and half the church raised their hand. Now, I'm not going to do that to you, but if you didn't get that joke, don't admit it. <laughs> this week's text tells us that the vast majority of the kings of Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. However, there were a couple of notable exceptions, exceptions and this week we're going to look at one of those in Hezekiah. So let's begin in verse 1 through 8. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. 
He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands of the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territories. While most of the other kings did evil in the eyes of the Lord, we are told that Hezekiah was different. Hezekiah was an outlier. He was the exception. He trusted in the Lord. In fact, this word that's used for trusted is only used one time in the book of Kings, and that's to describe King Hezekiah. He was special. So what can we learn from how he led and how he lived his life? Well, let me set the, let, set the scene for the reign of Hezekiah. He is the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. He is following his father Ahaz, and we are told that he carried out all the detestable practices of the nations. In fact, he went and visited the king of Assyria and Damascus, and he came back and he built an altar just like the one that he had seen there to worship idols. But yet, Hezekiah did not follow in his father's footsteps. He was the polar opposite. This is the time of division, if you remember. There's a, a southern kingdom and there's a northern kingdom. Uh, the king of the northern kingdom has already been imprisoned by the uh, Assyrians, been taken into captivity. And the thing you need to know is when they were taken into captivity, it was sort of a, a death march. And they were taken all the way to what we now know as Iran and Iraq in that area. And the Assyrians were especially cruel to their captives. It was common that they would put out the eyes of the leaders of the countries that they had conquered. And then they would put a hook through their nose and drag them along behind their chariots. The palace of the Assyrian king Sennacherib was decorated with elaborate stone panels that told the story of his rule. Like this one showing impaled prisoners on display at the British Museum in London. Nice way to decorate your house, right? So Hezekiah was aware of what awaited him if he lost. He had grown up under the influence of his father that had worshipped the pagan gods to appease the Syrians, even sacrificing Hezekiah's baby brother. He is under siege both from the outside of Judah and on the inside because he is trying to protect his people not just from a foreign invasion but from 
the spiritual attack that's underway as people worship pagan gods. Today, we are living in a time of great angst. Because I think we would all agree that our society is sick. We live in constant concern about violence because people are being gunned down just going to the grocery store or going to church or little kids just trying to finish out the school year. It feels like we are under siege and we are spiritually bankrupt. It feels like our leaders are failing us. So what can today's story teach us about how we can survive and thrive in these times? Well, first of all, it teaches us that we have to learn how to hold fast to our Lord. The text tells us that Hezekiah held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands of the Lord had given Moses. It's interesting that this Hebrew word for hell fast, we ran into that a few weeks ago when we talked about King Solomon, except there it described how Solomon held fast to his many foreign wives. This is a photo of someone that is holding fast today. He is a pastor in Buka, Ukraine that you are supporting through our Easter offering. When you look at his eyes, you just know that he's seen a lot, that he's holding fast. You remember Buka was the first town that was taken back from the Russians and they found where so many people had been massacred. But he is facing down evil and has remained and continues to care for his congregation. Holding fast under great adversity is tough. We have to learn how to follow God and hold fast while dealing with the reality of our circumstances. We have to hold fast in faith, but also we have to take action. As an example, Hezekiah, you might have heard of Hezekiah's tunnel. Uh, Hezekiah built a 1,750-foot tunnel in Jerusalem so that they could get water from Gihon Springs in case the Assyrians had a siege on the city and it's still there today you can see it if you go there if you're if you're not too claustrophobic and you don't mind getting a little wet you can still walk through it today it's an engineering marvel he was holding fast to the Lord and he had decided that despite the threats he was going to follow God and he was going to keep his command when God's commands are not popular we have to hold fast we have to hold fast when our friends on both extremes want to cancel you at the drop of a hat it's a hard practice it's a hard practice to hold fast and to live out our value of gentle reverence gentle reverence means living out the gospel with both truth and grace it means that you're finding a way to survive against a pagan culture and not give in to the Assyrians of our time. We are told that we have to appease the culture. We have to become like the culture. Otherwise, we're going to become irrelevant. 
And then others tell us that uh, we can't do that. We've got to fight. We've got to fight and we've got to win at all costs. But the problem is when we do that, we become just like the Assyrians. You know, it's not just important to keep God's commands, but it's important how we keep God's commands. If we've learned anything over these past few months is that God did not just want his people to follow him, but he was concerned with how they followed him. He is not just interested in what we're doing, but he's interested in how we were doing it. How do we hold fast without becoming just like the Assyrians in the process? Now, Hezekiah faced this same dilemma. How does he hold off the Assyrians and still follow God's commands? How does he strike this balance? Well, let's look at 2 Kings 18, 13 through 15. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I have done wrong. Withdraw from me, and I will pay you whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasures of the royal palace. Hezekiah tried to make a deal with the king of Assyria. He was basically going to pay him to go away. But as often happens with tyrants, the king of Assyria was not satisfied. He wanted it all. So he sent a delegation to the walls of Jerusalem to make a demand of Hezekiah. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? The Assyrians are saying it's best to just go along with us. There's no reason to fight. Your God is irrelevant. There's no way to win. But when, when King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. Well, first of all, I love that the Lord calls the highest-ranking Assyrian officials underlings. But then before Hezekiah could respond, the Assyrian king sends him another threatening letter. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers, and he read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord, and he spread it out before the Lord. 
And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods in the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. Hezekiah's response shows that if we're going to hold fast, we've got to spread our problems before the Lord. I love the imagery of this scene. The king of Judah on his knees spreading his problems before the Lord. One commentator said, like a child with a broken toy asking their father to repair it. There are a couple of things that jump out to you as you read about Hezekiah's prayer. And the first is his posture. You know, his posture communicates that even though I am the king, I know that I am totally dependent on the Lord. When you have a problem, what is your posture? My posture is often that I pray in a more conversational pattern with God. And I don't think that that's necessarily wrong, but I think our posture says something about how we view ourselves and how we view God. Long before I went into ministry, uh, Rebecca and I had had a difficult situation with our children. We had lost our first son when he was six months old, and then our daughter was born after a very difficult pregnancy and under miraculous circumstances. And uh, soon after that, Rebecca said, well, let's have another baby. And uh, I said, let's not. Uh, <laughs> I always say if men had to have children, there wouldn't be a lot of people around. And I was just too afraid. And um, so she, she played sort of an unfair trick on me. She said, are you praying about it? Well, I wasn't praying about it because I had already made up my mind that I did not want to have another child because I was just too afraid. Well, not long after that, I attended a Promise Keepers event in Washington, D.C., and there were hundreds of thousands of men there that day. And I recently learned that one of the men uh, leading worship that day was Stephen Newby. And, um, and during that worship time, uh, one of the speakers said, for us to get on our knees and ask God's forgiveness for any way we had sinned against our wife. And arrogantly in my mind, I thought, well, this part really doesn't apply to me. <laughs> but God spoke to me, and in my spirit, he said, your wife asked you to pray, and you won't pray. And on that day, I got down on my face, and I prayed, and I spread it out before the Lord. And six months later, we were expecting a son. And he's now 23 and, and a huge blessing to our lives. I think there's something about our posture 
in prayer because it says something about us and it says something about God. And it says, I know I can't do this on my own. Hezekiah's prayer also reveals something important in that his priority was God's honor. As I read and reread this prayer, it reminded me of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus would teach his disciple hundreds of years later. Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hezekiah is asking for God's help because he knows that he can only be saved through God's work. But like Jesus, Hezekiah is teaching us that our first priority should be God's honor, that people would see him as the one true Lord. Deliver us from his hand so that the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Lord, not like the other gods that were made from wood and stone. Well, God did answer Hezekiah's prayer, and if you read the rest of the story, you find out that the Assyrian army was wiped out in dramatic fashion, and King Sennacherib was later killed, that Hezekiah's life was saved. But more importantly, God's glory was revealed. You know, if we're going to hold fast to the Lord, we have to spread our problems before him. But we also have to be willing to tear down our idols. When you read the story of Hezekiah, the first thing it describes is the tearing down of the idols. I saved it to last because, honestly, I think it's the thing that we struggle with the most. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. You know, Hezekiah really launched a spiritual reformation in Judah. You can read more about it if you go into the book of Chronicles. It talks about how he reinstituted proper worship and rebuilt the kingdom and observed the Passover. But he also eliminated the pagan idols because Hezekiah knew that we have a hard time worshiping God alongside of idols. Hezekiah knew that the people would constantly be influenced by these pagan ideas, or they would combine it with their faith. We call that syncretism, where you kind of blend different religious ideas together. For instance, they might, have, uh, they might have gone to the temple and worshiped God, but then they might have also, just to cover their bases, worshiped Baal. It's sort of like you get up in the morning and you read your quest Bible, but then you check the horoscope before you leave the house. 
Hezekiah knew that idols could not coexist alongside of the one true God. You know, idol worship is not just something that happened thousands of years ago. I've had the chance to go to India on a number of occasions and walk through the streets of Calcutta, and it is a city literally filled with idols. Most of them to the Princess Kali, who is the goddess of death and destruction and has this long red tongue and skulls around her waist, and you find people all throughout the city worshiping her. Years ago, I was walking through a slum there, and we were going to visit some sponsored children. And as we were walking along, uh, we struck up a conversation with a lady who was standing in the doorway of her little tiny house, and she invited us inside, and we walked inside, and I looked on her wall, and it was covered with pictures of all kinds of different idols. Mixed in with those pictures was a picture of Jesus. And when I saw it, I pointed to it and I said, Jesus. And she smiled broadly in her broken English. She said, yes, he's my favorite. <laughs> now, it's a funny story, but I think that the reality is that's true for some of us as well. That just doesn't happen on the wall of a home in a slum in India because on our walls they could be filled with our idols because an idol is not just something that's made from wood and stone an idol is carved with our mind Tim Keller says an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God what are the things that absorb your heart, and your imagination? What are the high places in your life that need to be torn down? On a wall filled with our money and our children and our football teams and our kids' sports and our political parties, can we honestly say that Jesus is any more than our favorite? Is he anything more than something to give us spiritual comfort on a week like this before we go back to our wall? We all want it to be said of us that we did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But it requires holding fast. It requires a willingness to be an outlier, to be different. And we can only do that in the power of the Spirit. And we need that power because we are under siege. We are living in a time of spiritual darkness where little kids are shot just because they were going to school. And a time like this, our idols can't save us. The only thing that can save us is us recognizing that Jesus is more than our favorite. He is our Lord. Let us pray.
Lord, we are sick and we are broken. And we come to you for spiritual comfort in times of tragedy. And then we go right back to our wall of idols. Lord, change us. Lord, make us a part of a spiritual reformation in our nation. Let us be a part of the restoration of all that is broken. Give us the courage to tear down our idols and seek your kingdom above all else. And we pray this in Jesus' name.